I even wrote like Steve Jackson a letter when I was like 13 and I was like, I'm making this game called Gladiator. Do you have any advice for me? And he was like, go to conventions. I was like 12 years old living in rural North Carolina in a single wide trailer, right? No internet back in these days, right? And I was like, hmm, that's it. Wonder how one goes to a convention. It just seemed like a completely other world, right? And uh, so that's how I got started. Hi, it's Gary Snow from Daiku Games. I'm here with Tim Early from the brand new game called Holler that's been recently funded on Kickstarter. And so Tim, welcome to Daiku Podcast. Thanks, Gary. I'm really glad to be here and talk with you today. Well, it's a, an amazing story, I think, because uh, how this built up the momentum it did, I thought was just incredible. And, uh, and I, I really want to get into the details of how Holler came to be. But first of all, I really want to get back into the details of your life and how you became a game designer in the first place. So maybe you can just take us on that journey of how you became a game designer. Absolutely. Well, I started playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons in either 1981 or 1982 when I was nine years old. I grew up in a very rural part of North Carolina, uh, Rutherford County, North Carolina. Um, it was a county that was dominated by the textile mill industry for about 100 years. And, you know, I come from a working class background. My father drove a truck. Uh, my mother was raised in a mill village until she was 12 or 13, and, and most of my family, um, my, my uncles and, and the older folks in the family, like, worked in blue-collar jobs. I had some family members who worked in the mills and, and that kind of thing, and I was sort of a, a different kid. I didn't have the same, like, mechanical aptitude that everyone around me seemed to have. Like, my, my dad would try to help me to to get me to help him work on the cars and my grandfather would try to show me how to build something and it quickly became apparent that I was useless for anything except holding the flashlight and I would usually hold it incorrectly and so I needed some other sort of outlets because I wasn't good at the things I was supposed to be good at right growing up where I grew up um, and I found I'm not sure how I found Dungeons and Dragons but I found it in 1981 or 1982, I was nine or 10 years old. And I started with AD&D, uh, which, you know, that first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, it's not that user-friendly. Yeah. Uh, the vocabulary is a reach for a <laughs> nine or 10-year-old often, right? Um, but I was just fascinated by it. And I started running games for my cousin and my brother. And we would sometimes start at like seven o'clock right after supper. And we would play until the sun came up the next morning. Yeah. And I'm sure it was like B minus movie to C plus movie material. <laughs> you know, we were just kids and we were inventing this stuff and we were keeping it going. And it was all about killing things and getting like mounds of treasure that, you know, yeah. they couldn't possibly carry, but I let them carry it anyway. Right. And um, so I, I really got into dungeon mastering. I did it pretty intensively for about five or six years from the age of 10 till about 15 or 16. During that time, I also made my own games, right? I made um, a gladiatorial combat game. I made sports games. So between, I even wrote like Steve Jackson a letter when I was like 13. And I was like, I'm making this game called Gladiator. Do you have any advice for me? And he was like, go to conventions. And I was like 12 years old <laughs> living in rural North Carolina in a single wide trailer. 
right? No internet back in these days, right? And I was like, hmm, that's it. Wonder how one goes to a convention. It just seemed like a completely other world, right? Yeah. And uh, so that's how I got started. And well, it was that's just fascinating that Steve Jackson responded to you. Do you he still did. have the letter? I don't because I didn't, you know, I did it when I was 12 or 13. I didn't realize how the world worked or how cool and unusual that was at that point. And I don't have it anymore. But he, he wrote me a handwritten letter. When I was 12 or 13 years old, uh, giving me some advice on how to proceed. And, you know, I probably wrote him a letter that was just filled with grammatical errors and, you know, misspellings and, and, you know, atrocious handwriting. And he took the time to respond. So, and that was Steve Jackson of GURPS fame. Yes. That's okay. Not the uh, English Steve Jackson that uh, (laughs) they always get confused between them, but yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And I wonder if it's thinking about the fact that he's inspired you and now you're uh, a game designer, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was really, yeah, I wish I had the letter, obviously, at this point, right? Um, and so I really wanted to do it, and it sort of drove my mother crazy because I would cut up these little pieces of paper, and I would just spend, and they didn't understand what I was doing. It must have seemed incredibly strange to them. Um, but it was my first sort of step into, like, creativity, reading, literature, um, and, and just generating worlds. And I don't know why I stopped playing around 15 or 16, but I shifted more and more into uh, writing poetry, and which was also an incredibly odd thing for me to do. Like my parents were absolutely mystified by this, as were many of my friends. Uh, and my first poems were atrocious. They were like mashups of like, because I didn't have any like poetic models. They were more like mashups of like Prince lyrics and REM lyrics, like put together in a blender. It's a very strange combination. Uh, and then I, I started getting some pats on the back, folks telling me I was good at it. And that's really all it took. And I pursued it for the next 28 years, almost <laughs> exclusively. So between the ages of 16 and 44, I played no role-playing games, right? And just tell us a little um, bit about the poetry. Like what, what was kind of the topic or underlying theme about it? Well, my, my early poems were sort of weird, surrealist poems. And then I sort of transitioned more and more into writing about where I was from. Like when I was really young in my 20s, I just, I tried to lose my accent a little when I went to graduate school and I tried to distance myself from where I was from. And then I slowly realized as I matured, like where I'm from is a gold mine creatively right and that accent and that dialect is a gold mine and so I I, and I've I've learned things about the area I was from by going to college that I never knew when I was living there like I didn't know that we spoke an Appalachian dialect my my grandmother and grandfather would say things like his and hern and yorn for possessive pronouns and like yuns instead of y'all and uh lots of things like there's I could, there's a dictionary this thick over here that sort of delineates the contours of Southern Appalachian English. And just and to so, it's Appalachian. Am I even... Well, it's a debate. It's a debate. I think Appalachian has conclusively won this debate in, in, in my mind. Uh, folks who are from the Southern end of the chain, like all the way from Northern Georgia, upstate South Carolina, Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, 
and I think most of Eastern Kentucky and Southwest Virginia and West Virginia uh, say Appalachian. There's some folks in Ohio which has some Appalachia in it who say Appalachian, and then you get further up and you'll hear Appalachian. And then anybody who's not from the region tends to say like Appalachian or Appalachian even. And, you know, but we've always said Appalachian is Appalachian State University, and right? But that's, yeah. I'll probably mess up because I'm from Canada and we have like the French uh, influence. So it's Appalachian and yeah. the Laurentian and that kind of thing. Absolutely. And, that, and it doesn't matter. However, anybody wants to say it is great, but it's funny, like how territorial people get over that particular pronunciation, like, like Appalachian scholars, you know, get heated if they hear Appalachian, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, and I started writing more and more about the region and about my family uh, and about things I experienced growing up. And then when all the textile mills left, so North American Free Trade Agreement hit the textile mill industry really hard in, in the mid and late 90s. And then the Great Recession of 2008 just extinguished it entirely. And so we had all these communities that their entire lives centered around the mill. And for a while, the mill owned the houses that folks lived in and they paid rent to the mill and they were paid in script very early on that they could only redeem in the company store. So it was like a closed like economic system. Uh, and even after that system broke down, the mills were still the center of the community and people lived in old mill houses and they were vibrant communities. Uh, and when those left, it just sort of like, oh man, it, it devastated those communities. The, the unemployment rate in Rutherford County at one point in 2010 or 2011 hit like 21%. Uh, the poverty rate in Forest City, which is, the biggest town in that county is around 37%. Like for a lot, I think all the kids, I think this is still true. They all get free lunch because the poverty level in the county is so high that the state just like, we're not paying, making these kids pay for their lunch. And it just, it just radically changed the county. Um, and then lots of problems started springing up, you know, that come with economic hardship. There are a lot of prescription pill abuse. A lot of meth labs started springing up, increases in domestic violence. And so I saw this place that I loved and was very close to me, just really transformed uh, by these textile mills leaving. And I started to write about that almost exclusively in my last couple of books. Um, and so going from that to a game like Holler, which is about labor conflict, it's about you know, environmental devastation, um, was sort of a natural progression. And I mean, and that's an underlying theme of Holler. Like you said, it's about the the working class being uh, oppressed or uh, made to to be. Uh, well, you tell me uh, exactly the kind of the underlying themes of it. But it seems like really compelling narrative arcs that are possible within the game. Yeah, and you know, the, when you move from like the, that real world socioeconomic hardship into a game world. It gets hyperbolized, it becomes caricatured, right? And so our textile mill owners and coal mine operators are larger than life villains. You know, they're mustache twirling villains with the maniacal laughter, like some of them. There's some nuance to them too, but like they're painted with pretty broad strokes. And the, the kinds of oppression uh, and restrictions that they're instituting on the people is all based in history, right? 
but when you pull into a game, you you turn up the volume on it, right, to make it, you know, as intense and and claustrophobic and uh, uh, conflict filled as possible. So yeah, we have these big boys. That's what we. That's why the folks in the holler column, them big boys came in here and started setting up their mines and mills, and they rule the holler with an iron fist. They've also sealed the holler off from the rest of existence. And you know, there's lots of different theories about how they did this. You find out if you buy the book and you're the GM or called the shift boss in the holler and you read it. Um, but I, I like that idea because, you know, if in Appalachian studies, one of the first things that people talk about, about why Appalachia is so unique is because the mountains sort of isolated it from the larger world. And it allowed that dialect to flourish on its own and develop its own little interesting permutations. And, um, that isolation made is part of what makes the culture so unique. So we're just going to seal it off. So if you're in the if you're in the holler, you can't leave. The big boys can come and go. They know how, but the holler folks can't. There's like this otherness that surrounds it, like this veil of toxic fog, right? Um, and so that's sort of the the basic setup for the world. And the player characters are everyday folks who have either worked for the big boys and, and escaped from that factory system or, or, or coal mine system, or they're folks who have not yet been sort of colonialized, if you will, by the big boys. They've been living up in the high mountains, out in the woods, and they're sort of the, the rural dissidents, right? So you have rebels who've been in the system and rebels who've never been sort of assimilated into the system. And they come together and try to build, uh, you know, a resistance movement. To the big boys and the the term holler can you tell us how that came to be yeah uh you know it it's sort of for this game it's it's sort of a has a dual meaning uh, a holler in in appalachia is a very narrow valley uh backs up to a ridge usually at the bottom of the holler there's might be a creek that forms the, the other border so this is narrow sort of enclosed valley. And lots of times a family would settle up in the holler and all the folks who related were related would live in the same holler. So it might be like, oh, that's Johnson's holler up there. And everybody lives there was a, a Johnson or related in some way, right? And so it's geographic and it's familial and it's social. And then, you know, when you're scared, you holler, right? It's, it's a game with horror elements, right? And then like, in the South, you might yell, but you also just holler out when you see somebody, right? You holler across a field. Yeah. Um, in North Carolina and Eastern North Carolina, um, there's this great tradition in, in various parts of the state of, of hog calling. And they'll have like hollering contest, right? Where people compete to see who can do the most creative hollers. And we have that as like a folk custom in the game with a few layers to it. So yeah, maybe a triple meaning almost <laughs> for, the, for the title. That's cool. And I mean, I, I'm just fascinated by the story of how you started like in on the idea of the game and then how did it get picked up uh, by Peg from that initial um, spark of uh, inspiration? Yeah, it was really like just lucky and, and serendipitous. Uh, so hadn't played for 28 years. Um, and my wife was getting a PhD in creative writing at the University of Denver. Um, she's also a poet and a teacher. 
And so we moved to Denver. We were out there and in this community of writers and then a uh, fellow poet, Juliet Lee, terrific poet and, and critic um, said, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons is on my bucket list, something I'd like to do. And I was like, you know, I can make that happen. I used to do that all the time. I was curious about fifth edition, right? So I was like, this is a good excuse to buy those books. So I bought them, I read them, I learned enough to run a game and I ran a game for some of the other writers in the community. And I quickly transitioned and they were having a hard time with the rules because they never played an RPG before. And I'm like, I need to scale this down for these people. And so I went from Dungeons and Dragons to Dungeon World, right? We're going to do some PTBA. It's just dead simple. It's all about story. They're going to love it. And when we made that transition, it really just clicked. And we had some great campaigns. And I was running all kinds of stuff. I was running like a, a Curse of Strahd in the, the Dungeon World system. I uh, did a lot of Monster of the Week. Um, the Blades in the Dark. Had a good Blades in the Dark campaign going and um so i just got more and more into it and i was just like i'm sort of a, a was a system hopper for a while trying to find the one that really jived with me i tried out some year zero games and all great games and i, lo I love playing them all the warren is one of my favorite things uh powered by the apocalypse game to run at conventions right never had a bad game of the warren um so i just kept doing it more and more and um Somebody said to me, I think uh, Alicia Mountain, um, you should write a game set in Appalachia. And it hadn't occurred to me to try that, right? Um, and I'd worked on Coven a little bit um, and got it up to where I was running it for, for folks around town. And so I started trying. Uh, I, I, I wrote down some ideas. And then um, this was after, though, let me get my my linear narrative straight, right? So um, when I went to uh, Genghis Khan, great convention in Denver in February of 2019, I, I had like the Savage Worlds, uh, maybe Explorers edition, but I hadn't checked it out too much. There were some Savage Worlds games going on and there was Savage Saturday night, right? And um, a lot of Savage Worlds activity. And I signed up for Savage Worlds of Flash Gordon run by Scott A. Woodard. And I was like, I don't know anything about this system. And a, a, a guy who later became a playtester for Holler uh, had been one of my earlier games. I said, I'm playing the Savage Worlds game. Can you tell me anything about it? And he was able to explain like the basic mechanics in like three minutes to the point of like, okay, I'm going to be getting some bennies. My dice are going to ace. I got my trait <laughs> rolls. I knew like those three things coming to the table. And then I sat down and um, every, you know, there's 30 tables, 25 tables, everybody playing Savage Worlds, like everybody laughing, having a great time. And I sit down at Scott Woodard, who wrote Flash Gordon, you know, great RPG writer, great guy. And then to my left was Daryl Hayhurst. And I didn't know that Daryl Hayhurst, I didn't know who Daryl was. And he later became a playtester and we're good friends now. Um, he was teaching me how to play Savage Worlds, right? And so I had like expert guidance from the very yes. beginning and i was like huh this is really really fun and i just i love that game of flash gordon so when i got home i got the box set for flash gordon i got the box set for east texas university i got the box set for rippers and i just started going through it and i was like ah i think this is what i want to do 
And that was about the same time my friend said, write an Appalachian game. So I was like, I want to try to write a Savage Worlds Appalachian game, right? And I, I only played about two months. And I was started running things for about two or three months before I started writing the first words on Holler. And then, um, long story short, I was just, I knew, I'd seen Landauer at the convention. And I looked him up on Facebook. Chris, and I said, Chris Landauer? Yeah, Chris Landauer, who does a lot of marketing stuff for uh, Savage Worlds, a lot of the online events, right? And, uh, you know, he's, he's a good designer and game writer, too. He's done some great work on Buccaneer. He has his own game, uh, SWAT, that he's been working on for a while. Um, and so just very steeped in Savage Worlds knowledge. And he was running a little podcast called Savage Cast, or not a little one, but, you know, local podcast. Mm -hmm. And so I messaged him and I was like, man, that convention was great. I got this little game called Holler I'm working on. Would you mind taking a look at like the first six or eight pages, I guess? And he was like, oh, come on the podcast. You know, I was green as I could be. You know, I'd been playing this game for two or three months. And he wanted to talk to me about my game. Okay, I'll come talk about this idea I have for a game that may or may not turn into a game. And uh, so I did that. And then I got in touch with Carl Kiesler. I just, you know, met at the convention too. And I was like, how much does layout cost? How much does a logo cost? How much would a cover cost? And Chris and Carl both were just, and Daryl and Scott too. Everybody I interacted with from that community were just completely like welcoming, nice, supportive. They didn't care that I was a newbie, right? They just thought, oh, this is kind of a cool idea. And he's approaching it with energy and enthusiasm. Let's help him, right? Yeah. And so that's how I got started. Well, this might be a good time to bring up uh, some images from the uh, from the uh, Kickstarter, and maybe before we do that, let's uh, let me know when you can see that. Just talk about like how you got into Savage Worlds, even maybe even prior to Holler. Mm -hmm. Well, I did a couple of little things like as I was first starting to work on Holler, um, and I guess. I'm not, I don't even remember how I hooked up with Eric Lamoureux and, and, and Calvin Thompson, uh, who are terrific designers. Um, I played in Eric's new game, Boomstick, during Halloween too. And it was maybe the most fun I've ever had playing a game. It was incredible. Um, but they became aware of Holler and Eric, maybe I sent him the little jump start of Holler after we'd been talking. And he asked me if I'd wanted to write a little adventure for Wise Guys. And so I did. And then I wrote uh, for Calvin's Gods and Masters, which are two terrific settings. And these are just like short adventures, like six, eight, ten page one shots. Right. Yeah. Um, so those are a couple of things that I published before I published Holler and, and gave me some good experience, you know, in writing adventures and, and you know, putting the narrative together with the rules and you know, statting monsters and, and things like that. And then um, I guess I have to ask you some kind of game mechanic nerd uh, kind of questions is what were you using prior when you were first developing Hauler? What mechanics were you kind of developing at that point? I had, you know, I had so many ideas and um, I was working with, I, I'd come up with an entire system for blight, which is this toxic fog that sort of roils around the holler. Uh, it 
sort of covers everything, right? And it slowly wears the people down over time. And I had this, these elaborate like uprising rules so you could track uh, the resistance as it grew into like a full revolution. Um, and I wanted to have some rules for um, sort of prophecy and soothsaying and, and where players could take ownership of the narrative. And so I was doing all these things and uh, also working on the arcane backgrounds and just came up with some pretty elaborate rule systems and way too many edges and hindrances, right? That's just sort of the newbie-like thing. We're like, oh, I got to make an edge and a hindrance for every little part of my setting. Yeah. And no, you don't because suede has so many good ones and they work, they interlock and they, they feed off of each other. And it's a very nicely nuanced ecosystem already. Right. And so I just created a glut of stuff, which um, once it got into Shane's hands and Tracy's hands, they're like, we don't need that. We don't need that. We're not doing that. Right. And so, but, but the, the idea stayed intact. And, and, and then we just sort of worked back and forth, like how do we incorporate these and, and make them fit into the Savage World system, right? Well, really. there's so many edges and hindrances from so many other different games. I, like, I even have go, gone in my head, how can you even come up with new ones? They've all been, right. but you managed yeah. to. Well, yeah, doesn't mean they were good. Doesn't mean they were good ones, right? You know. Okay, so. Edge, I was thinking of them more as like, this is adding flavor to the setting, but they have to be load bearing. They have to carry their weight. They can't overlap with other edges. People have to have compelling reasons to take them, right? Uh, they're not just for flavor. And so I got that course correction, you know. In Savage Worlds, like you said, everybody that was at the convention, they're playing, they're all having fun. And what's the pitch for Savage Worlds? Like if when you saw that everybody was having fun and you went, hey, here's some mechanics that I could tap into. Mm -hmm. Just tell me that process in your head of like, okay, this is this is the path. It was the combination of how swingy the dice are and how unpredictable they are and sort of the dramatic swings between the critical failures and then the acing that can, you know, you can roll a two or you can roll a 54 with your little D4, you, you know? Um, and just that sort of like possibility, like there could be major, major swings um, and how fast paced the combat was, right? Um, it seemed like a system that was well suited for really like cinematic action, uh, fast-paced cinematic action and lots of drama. And I also liked how a lot of the settings take that and transform it into this pulp sensibility. And it has a bit of a B-movie sensibility at times in a lot of the settings. And that was very appealing to me as well as a huge fan of B-films and horror films. Uh, the worse, the better, in my opinion, right? <laughs> Um, and so those things, it's capacity for like quick dramatic shifts in the narrative and cinematic action. And then I just love the little Benny, spend the Benny for narrative control. The, the player can like add a detail and, and that kind of thing. I was really intrigued by that. And I attempted to like build off that 
a little bit and, and holler. Um, so all those things together uh, made it feel like a really good fit for what I wanted to do. And looking back upon it now, um, when you think about there's a, a built in audience of Savage World players that are probably anxious or always eager looking for new settings to play in. And then uh, Savage Worlds or Pinnacle um, has like a pretty uh, nice setup for ace publishers. And did you kind of see that as a nice business model to take too? I did. I did. I was interested in the ACE program and that's why I contacted Carl. Like, I just want to put together like a 32 page jumpstart, see if I can get my ACE license and then go from there because they just done all those jumpstarts along with the suede Kickstarter. And a lot of them were coming out and I was like, well, I'm late to this, but I can make one too and put it out there. And we never ended up releasing the jumpstart, but we made 32 page jumpstart and that's what we got the license with. And, um, you know, Chris Landauer, knew Shane, he, I think he talked up holler to Shane. And then Shane asked me to send him uh, the jump start, And I did. And then we're supposed to go on this big cruise, right? Right before the pandemic happened, there was this big savage cruise and I'd signed up to go on it. I was excited. I was going to be running holler there. Shane was in the group I was supposed to be running for. And then I had a lot of stuff come up that made me unable to go on the cruise between I'm, I teach full time at the University of Mississippi. So it's kind of hard to get away for a week sometimes, you know, and I had some other stuff going on. And so I wasn't able to go. And Shane was like, well, I'll run holler. Right. So in the game he was supposed to be playing in. And I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty damn fancy, you know, and I was super excited. And so he ran it. And um, I was real curious about how it went, of course. And I was teaching uh, that Sunday. I used to teach a Sunday course at Johnson and Wales University in Denver. And we were on break and I get this text from Landauer. And he says, this is after they got back from the cruise a few days. I think you're going to get some big news from Shane. And I was like, what does that mean? And he wouldn't really, he didn't really, there was no follow-up, right? It was just like, you know. <laughs> it's, and so I was waiting all week, like, going to email me and so about wednesday i was like shane I, I know you read you ran holler on the cruise how did it go he was like ah let's do and then a couple of days later it, the first sentence he said i want to offer you a contract for it and i was just you know blown away i thought he might give me some advice on how to make it better right that's that's sort of what i was thinking i'd, I'd hear and then all of a sudden he says he wants to make it an official line sort of like East Texas University, like they did with that game. Um, and yeah, and that started the, the, the process of turning it from my little 32 pager into the 208 page behemoth that it, it currently <laughs> is. Did you all of a sudden go, wow, I'm in it, in up to my uh, eyes with work? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, and I wrote a, a short story for, for the Wendigo Tales anthology. That was sort of the first thing I did. And then from that, that sort of set the tone and mood for where we were going. And then uh, that was in February when I was offered the contract. And then I had the a first draft of the game written, 135,000 words by like the first week in August, right? So that summer, I really drilled down on it. And, you know, but Pinnacle is working on multiple projects all the time, you know, Pathfinder was in the work. Nobody knew it, 
right? But Pathfinder was already growing and they were doing some things with risks and, you know. Um, so Shane was like, I don't know when we'll kickstart this, right? But, you know, the sooner you get it written, the better, the more time we'll have with it. And so I, I didn't really know when it would be kickstarted until, you know, maybe uh, this past summer. It was like, okay, we're going to go for, for October, right? Yeah. And, you know, and we've been sort of refining it in fits and starts the whole time and, and getting the, the art uh, aesthetic nailed down and, and those kinds of things and play testing it the entire time. Yeah, let me share uh, the uh, just the overall look of it. And here's the, the Kickstarter set that you can see on the screen. And maybe just cover off some of the cool things that you had in the Kickstarter, just like at a very high level. Some of the, like it, it's pretty impressive, a box set. Yeah, I know it's it's the full money with the box set, right? You, we got a custom action deck in there, custom Benny's, thirty-two-page uh, GM screen adventure, the the wonderful pawns that that Pinnacle's doing now uh, for all their lines, uh, really nice cardstock pawns, uh, the dice, of course, and then in the GM screen, which I think is a gorgeous GM screen. Uh, I think it's going to look beautiful on folks. On folks table and then we have the limited edition leatherette version of the of the core book for folks who backed at like the highest level the boss of the holler level so they get two books same content one sort of the one you use and one's a fancy one that i'll be signing i have like 307 of them to sign right now i think um whenever we get to that point which will be a ways down the road but yeah it's it's a it's a box set that's just like chock full of really cool stuff. Well, it really reminds me of the Flash Gordon box set, which is like almost impossible to find now. I think mm -hmm. uh, Flash Gordon set, and but it's kind of I think got that collector vibe that who knows in uh, five years you might be uh, uh, cashing in like that will be your retirement fund to sell in <laughs> box sets you have in your garage. Yeah, it's it's and it's got we have these antiquated like uh metal looking coins that that have some narrative uh relevance in the game right and that's another nice little sparkly thing that's this in the box so yeah they went they put tons of resources and behind it and tons of energy into it you know uh just because i was a writer coming from that it, we're going to do your game we're going to do it upright and they've supported me in every way possible and that is a good transition to the art. Um, and maybe you can just talk about the process. And uh, so on the screen, we've got art by, uh, I'm going to do my best at pronouncing his name. He's from Italy, Francesco Chiappara. Yeah, I'm I, think, I think you nailed it, Gary. Um, Prenzi, yeah, we, Prenzi X is his Twitter account. So we'll follow him up there. Yeah, he's got Twitter. He's on Instagram, Facebook. And he, he he's done a lot of work for comic books. And um our initial style for Holler was more representational, more realistic. And what we were finding was because our character, our archetypes are a lot different than like a, a paladin wielding his, his flaming sword of, of righteousness, right? Or, you know, a thief dual wielding daggers with the yeah. cloaked hood. How do, you, how do you make a granny woman into a hero, right? How do you take a gouger who just fights with her fists and nothing else and, and represent that. So she looks cool and you get the idea that like she's this martial combatant. 
And so we found that the more realistic representational art wasn't quite doing that. And we had this set of archetypes, they looked great. The art was good, but it wasn't catching the flavor that we wanted. And then Shane, and he sort of did this like behind the scenes, he went and talked with Aaron Acevedo who runs Sigil and they do all sorts of wonderful projects. And uh, they came back with these archetypes that Francesco drew that were more of a comic book feel, more of a graphic novel feel, more exaggerated. Um, and we just instantly fell in love with that art. And uh, he's just been knocking it out of the park since with everything he's done. And so what are we looking at on the screen here? Yeah, so um, that's a field demon slash Pumpkinhead, right? Pumpkinhead, the, the film uh, from 1988, Stan Winston was huge inspiration. Uh, the, just the tone and the feel of it and the witch. And I was just like, let's just make a pumpkin head with a big old jack-o'-lantern, just pop it on there, give him a pitchfork and turn him loose. So this is one of the demons from the holler. And then the sheep squatch, we also have uh, a, a nice array of cryptids, which, you know, it's a, it's a pretty dark setting. It's a pretty intense setting. It can be a really gritty setting. And the cryptids sort of give it like a touch of humor or magical realism, a touch of fairy tale maybe. And they're all pulled from Appalachian cryptids, some of them more modern than others. And so the sheep squatch is, I like to say he's, he's half man, half sheep, half squatch, right? Which, you know, goes over the 100% a little bit. Um, but yeah, he's, and he hasn't been sheared in a very long time. And so just, I saw the story about a sheep that hadn't been sheared and it had these huge mounds of, of wool on it. And that, that was the inspiration for And how, So how much of this is based in folklore that you've come across and how much is your own interpretation of that? In, in almost every instance, there's some basis in folklore. And then I take it and change it in some way to, to gamify it a little more and, and, and make it fit the, the feel of holler a little more. So it's always like a negotiation between, this is the real thing. What would make the real thing more fun in, in game? You know? well, that's cool. And how, so how many monsters or opponents do you have in the game? Well, I'm, I can't say definitively about the bestiary because um, it was enormous. And then necessarily it's going to have to be cut down some, right? We, we have like so many uh, opponents. I'm not sure what the exact number is, but it dozens. And um, the human opponents are just as evil and complicated as interesting and as interesting as the monsters, but demons, uh, fey, cryptids, and haints are sort of the four big categories of, of monsters. Um, and yeah, we just have a ton of them. And the demons are, are particularly nasty. There are some demons that can possess and they can just do horrific things to player characters, if not exercised with speed. <laughs> and so now onto this page, just yeah. uh, some of the, the folks that live there and uh, maybe talked about the archetypes there. Yeah, and so the first one is a granny woman. This is one like, well, one of... To me, she was maybe the third archetype I thought would just have to be a core part of the setting. In Appalachia, uh, granny women 
are community elders who served as midwives quite often and as healers. Um, and they would use various herbs and poultices and, and these sorts of things. And just sort of like a repository of cultural wisdom in the community yeah. and, and someone who just like took care of everybody, right? And what a great cleric <laughs> character, right? to have and so that's our granny woman and you see she has a little raccoon tail coming out of her bag and all these various herbs popped into her bag and, and my grandfather even uh, he had like herbal remedies he said you get a sore in your mouth you just got what he called yellow root which i think is yarrow and just just pop it on there it'll take care of it and they were always talking about people who could just if you had a wart uh, they could put their thumb on it say a few words that would be gone in two days, right? And so it's uh, really steeped in the region. And then we have the curious youth, um, which I like this archetype because it sort of hooks into the jacktails of Appalachia. Um, if you've never seen him, Ray Hicks, um, who's from, I think, Watauga County, North Carolina, uh, one of the best American storytellers, period. And he was just, he knew all the jacktails and all these other stories and told them in this very colorful fashion. And the jacktails, a young adolescent Jack, is the main figure. And he's, he's super curious. He's sort of always getting into trouble. Uh, his, the complications of the situations that he's in just tend to magnify. And he succeeds usually by a combination of like dumb, luck and surprising wit and and those come together somehow and he's just sort of irrepressible and incorrigible and you can't teach him anything you can't get him to behave <laughs> and so that's the curious youth um and he actually came out of an npc that i was playing in in our playtest campaign and the other characters enjoyed his presence so much that he became a tag along and we're like well let's just make him an archetype and do up art and everything and then the other one is the so one of the cool things about Savage Worlds is the way the system is set up is you don't there's not really the min maxing that might take place in some of the other <laughs> systems like you can really play a character and add to the narrative. Absolutely. And that's I think the holler characters really welcome that sort of interpretation because you can take them and do anything you want. You can load them up with whatever edges and hindrances you want. They're just sort of concepts. They're just like broad templates for the player to take and anywhere they want. And the Curious Youth, the way that we have them set up on the official archetype card and the way I tend to play him, he, he has his lucky horseshoe. He has a cap gun. And that's, those are his only weapons. He's not very effective in a fight, um, but he's great at taunting. You know, he will just make people distracted and vulnerable all the time, all sorts of hygienes, um, and just a really fun character to play, a character who, like, and he gets, the character that I've played has almost died so many times, just <laughs> to the edge of death so many times, because he does these ridiculous things, because he's impulsive, and he's curious, and he has a big mouth, constantly getting into trouble, but it makes the encounter is so much more interesting when you have this like sort of little low-key mischievous spirit like that. And then the peddler is a character who, so there's sort of a black market economy in the holler, like folks, the Kramer Holt agents and other folks they bring in from the city to help in their indoctrination programs. 
sometimes they bring in goods and they trade for like exotic stuff from the holler, like moonshine or bear skins or whatever else. And the peddler sort of takes advantage of this black market economy. And she's sort of this like crafty, cunning, untrustworthy <laughs> make oil salesman. You're never going to get a good deal with a peddler, right? But uh, player characters don't start out with very much, right? You're lucky if you have, you know, you have a good knife, you know, and a, and a harmonica. That's pretty standard, right? So you have to acquire things. These can come through. Yeah killing Kramer hold agents or through trade. That's great. And uh, the next scene or uh, opponent. Oh yeah, this is a, this is a fellow we call a meat yardian. And I think my buddy, Brian Hosevar, who's a fiction writer from Lexington, Kentucky. He had the idea like, well, Ralph Eugene meat yard, those masks, that would be cool. And, um, they could be like a, a monster. And so I took that idea that he gave me and then developed a whole little mythology for them and then the art. And so Ralph Eugene Meatyard is a photographer from Lexington, Kentucky, took all kinds of photographs. But one of the things he did was just put these really grotesque masks on his family members and people that he knew and would just have them go pose by a barn or in a tree or in a field. And sort of the mixture of like this everyday normal scene and this, then this grotesque human face, they're really eerie. So yeah. Ralph Eugene Meatyard, if you don't know his photographs, go check them out. And so we have a whole class of folks who are Meatyardians in the holler. And I won't get into the myth behind them because that's a little spoilery. But uh, yeah, this is one just, you know, sitting in a tree on the edge of the cusp foot fins. Now I got to go check out those photos later. And then uh, this scene, it's, I uh, shows the darkness of the woods. Yeah, this is like, this captures more the fairy tale elements. Like there's folk horror, um, there's dark fantasy, and there's what I would think of as more fairy tale elements. Um, this is from a savage tale called uh, The Sisters of Shuckstack Valley. There's sort of a battle for control of the valley, as you see. And um, on the left, sort of like blighted, mutated woods. And then this idyllic pastoral scene uh, on the right or my right. Um, and it just sort of captures some of the whimsy of the holler. You got the little curious youth smelling flowers there, oblivious to the, to the darkness on the other side of the road a few feet away. Then the next scene. This is our moonshiner uh, just blasting away at worker ghouls, right? Um, workers who have been transformed into ghouls. And moonshiner, of course, another, another like essential archetype for this setting. You could not have the holler without the moonshiner archetype. And my favorite thing about this, and this is largely thanks to Daryl Hayhurst, is that he, uh, why not make moonshine in an arcane background? Like, yes, that's an excellent idea. So he, he becomes sort of like this, you know, he's ornery, he's salt of the earth, he's mean as a snake and twice as quick, and his moonshine has a little touch of magic to it, you know. That's great. And then just uh, here's some other samples of characters you already, already talked about, Granny, but who else is in here? Yeah, so 
we go moonshiner and then the holy roller with the snake um and then the miner who sort of are john henry adjacent archetype i would say i wanted like a john henry figure you know um and then the gouger who engages in these very brutal bare knuckle fights as the way to sort of like survive and and win food and and you know the necessities of living establish her reputation the granny woman and then the bluegrass picker right who you know doesn't have to be a banjo it can be a fiddle and they tend to be sort of like uh roused about rakish ne'er-do-well kind of characters they, they like to like to create some trouble and then cut and run before they have to pay <laughs> before they have to pay the popper right uh so another kind of chaos agent there um but the, yeah well, you talked about the gouger, and I've heard uh, you interviewed and talking about it before on your Kickstarter. Uh, just go into what a gouging contest looks like or is. Yeah, so a gouging contest is a way to settle. It can be a way to settle like an honest dispute, or it can just be for the spectacle and entertainment of, of the fight, too. And it's based on what was called gouging or rough and tumble fighting, which was more of a 19th century thing. Holler's more has a more of a 1930s vibe, but we pull in stuff that's a little newer than that and stuff that's a little older. And uh, rough and tumble fighting, gouging was a way for folks to settle disputes in rural areas in the South because there weren't any like cops around, <laughs> right? If you lived out, there was no authority. So you had to like figure out a way. And so these, these very brutal fights were one way of doing that. And, um, you know, people would be disfigured. One of the, the coup de gras of a gouging fight is taking the eye of the opponent, like gouging it out, right? Or taking a piece of an ear. And so I thought that would be a cool archetype to have. And it's become one of the central archetypes. So our gouging fights, you know, we like, we have that fun, we have that spectacle where, you know, there's sort of a, a calling out stage where, you know, you state your grievance, you talk about what a, a ass you are, right? You get the crowd riled up and other folks can assist, other characters can assist with this part. And then you're just in this really brutal one-on-one -on -one fight. Um, and there, we have a gouging table um, that just has, you know, a horrific list of, <laughs> of injuries on it. Well, I mean, as you talk about it, and I know that it's, to me, it seems like this is just a love letter to your heritage and in creating a fantastic world based upon it. That's what it feels like. like I've, I teach Appalachian literature. I, I write Appalachian-based poetry. I, I study the culture. I love the music of the culture. I have like a 13-hour-long a holler playlist you know, that I listened, that I wrote the, the game to, like listen to it on Spotify. And I live in Nashville, North Carolina, again now after being away from Western North Carolina for too long. And um, yeah, it's a love letter to the culture and to my family. And if I dedicated the book to anybody, it would be to my grandparents uh, because the way they talked, like determined the course of my existence, essentially, <laughs> right? It's because they use some different vocabulary words, right? And so when you look back upon now this incredible journey of like accidentally playing Dungeons and Dragons again and then getting sucked back into the world 
And now you've got a game that I think is one of the more original games that has come out in recent time. And I think it's fascinating. And do you just kind of pinch yourself and go, wow, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah, it still feels a little unreal. And I I just feel just so privileged to be in this position Uh, and and working with the people at Pinnacle. uh, They're incredible. They're just incredible at what they do. They work so hard. You know, when you're a fan and just playing, you know, I think, oh, I can write one of those. I'm a good writer. That's all you got to do is just writing. Oh, my Lord. There's so much work that goes in to making one of these things and and polishing it in the way that Pinnacle does. And uh, yeah, it it still feels a little unreal. Uh, I'm sort of happy. I'm giddy. I'm like, yeah, I don't don't think it's sunken in. It probably won't until the box set like arrives and I open it up and that new car smell comes out and I'm super excited, you know. And any advice to uh, other designers out there uh, that might have been in the same position? I mean, you, you really reached out and you kind of made those connections yourself. Yeah. What, you know, what Steve Jackson told me when I was a kid, like it's getting, meeting people in the community is just hugely important. Um, It's, it's hard to create an isolation. It's hard to create without feedback. So finding people, in a specific gaming community who have more knowledge, who have more expertise, or just a lot of expertise, doesn't have to be comparative. Uh, that's essential, getting feedback and getting support and getting people who will give you energy for what you're doing so you can sustain doing it because it's hard work and there may or may not be any kind of payoff. Um, so tapping into the community, not being afraid to reach out and say hi, you know, uh, going to conventions, talking to people in person, really important. And working on something that you are truly passionate about, I think, you know, is, is a huge thing as, as well, right? Great. Something that you're, you're interested in it, even if nobody was paying attention, you would still do it because you're so invested in it, right? Well, that's some great advice. And before you leave, just tell us what's the next steps. You said the box set and the Kickstarter delivery is eventually going to come. Um, and I think they're going to have uh, late sales on the website. Yeah, people will be able to do like a late pledges, be late backers um, eventually on the Pinnacle website. And, um, you know, we'll get the PDF to folks as soon as we can, the hot, we have holidays, you know, and those sorts of things, but we'll get the PDF as soon as we can. We're working on that right now. Tracy Sizemore, who's the developer of the project is doing an incredible amount of work right now. And, you know, Shane's doing his pass and all that. Yeah, sometime in 2022, I think. Again, you know, uh, global shipping, uh, you know, the printers, that's, it's just not a precise process how long that's going to take, but, you know, we're working hard and we'll get it out as soon as we can. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's so many logistic problems right now uh, in the world that uh, I'm sure that's all sorts of problems, but I can't wait to get my hands on the digital copy and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm going to put all the links of where you uh, find your work and the Kickstarter and all that information. And, uh, I uh, can't wait to get my hands on it. So, uh, you know, once again, well done, great product. Uh, I can't wait to see it. And uh, congratulations on a successful Kickstarter and an incredible game. 
Thanks, Gary. I really appreciate it. And thank you for talking to me today. It was a lot of fun talking with you.